The polls say Democrats are in trouble, but every time we have an election, the voters say Republicans are in trouble. We'll get into the election results from this week and the Biden polling numbers from this week and try to sort out what's real. Donald Trump is on the verge of losing the right to do business in New York and losing about a quarter of a billion dollars along the way. I'm not a real estate magnate or a winner of The Apprentice, but that seems bad, yes? Welcome back to the podcast that helps you, the 54% of the country that votes for progress in every election, convince your conservative friends and family members to join our majority. This is Majority 54. Jason, I feel like I must, I, I've got a small taste of what it's like to be a Chiefs fan. It's just all this winning. Every time we get together now, knock on wood, it's been good news for the past few yeah. times we've done this. So just to summarize a few things that have happened, uh, obviously uh, Democrats, well, I guess you can't even just say Democrats, but a ballot measure to enshrine abortion rights in Ohio, one plus 12, uh, which is mm-hmm. unbelievable. Um, Bashir in Kentucky, uh, the Democratic governor, won re-election with plus five in a state that Biden lost by 26 points. Uh, Democrats held the state Senate in Virginia and flipped the House. Uh, They held a Supreme Court seat in Pennsylvania and expanded their share of the New Jersey legislature, among other things, but that is quite a night. Yeah, and at the end of the day, uh, (laughs) voting is what counts, right? I mean, like, we are in a day and age where it's it's getting hard, and we'll discuss the polls in a few minutes, but it's getting harder and harder to know which polls to listen to, whether to listen to them. Every time we have an election, people go, what happened? The polls were so wrong. And then when people actually vote, Democrats keep winning. Uh, in fact, let's, let's look at this uh, clip from uh, Andy Bashir, the governor of Kentucky's victory speech uh, last night uh, in Kentucky. In his victory speech Tuesday night, the governor never mentioning Daniel Cameron or former President Donald Trump's names, but he did allude to their strategies not reflecting Kentucky values. And a clear statement that anger politics should end right here and right now. Bashir speaking on the disaster responses that have in many ways defined his first term. We have been through a lot together. Devastating tornadoes in the West, historic flooding in the east and after each i made a promise a promise that i would help rebuild every home and every life and thanks to the people of kentucky and thanks to this election we're going to see that promise through okay now that clip is important because we're going to break down both halves of that um so what that means is while we're very excited the democrats won a lot of places we also have to temper this with the sobriety of like what really happened, right? Because in Kentucky, while everybody noticed that Bashir won re-election, the Secretary of State, the Attorney General, all the down ballot stuff, the Republicans kicked our butts. And so the first half of that clip is what you're going to see on MSNBC and everywhere where Bashir talks about the politics of anger, which is as close as he's going to get in his rhetoric to attacking Trump or attacking the right wing. What you're not going to hear much of is the second half of that clip where he talks about his success and disaster response. Because as we've talked about on here before, Ravi, being a governor is different. It's not like being a senator. It's not like being a member of Congress. Governors do things and they can do things well or they can mess things up. And anybody who's paid any attention to the news coming out of Kentucky over the last four years knows there have been a lot of natural disasters in Kentucky. And clearly the people of Kentucky, uh, think that he's done a great job. And that's the kind of thing that sometimes, regardless of your politics, 
will get you reelected. Yeah, I, I agree. There's two different ways to interpret this. But, and I, I actually think they're both playing a part. One is that there's just really sound leadership from uh, governors, uh, Democratic governors, and, and in certain cases, legislators. And, uh, which means that local issues uh, went out, right? Like Bashir ran a very local race against a, uh, you know, the, the attorney general uh, in Kentucky who wanted to nationalize it and talk about things like trans issues. So like you had one case, a guy who um, by all accounts is really well known within Kentucky and who did a really competent job governing and uh, who wanted to talk about things that he did specifically for people in that state within his control and somebody else wanted to nationalize it for with culture war issues. But the other thing to to note is that the one exception to all this in terms of the nationalization, quote unquote, which is a weird frame because this does have local relevance to people in Kentucky, is that Bashir leaned into the abortion issue. And actually, if you compare what Bashir did, which was explicitly, you know, he, he didn't really want to talk about Trump, but he wasn't afraid to talk about abortion and lean into a, a fairly liberal position on abortion. You compare that to Yunkin in Virginia, who himself was not on the ballot, but obviously was like very stridently pushing um, to flip the Senate and hold the House, neither of which happened for him. He tried to nationalize that on abortion issues and, and actually go on the offense on abortion, right? He wanted to um, create a stricter abortion law and got his, his butt kicked. Uh, and it's interesting that it worked for a Democrat, um, even in a fairly red state, but it didn't work for a Republican in a purple state. Uh, and uh, we're going to play an ad that Bashir ran that uh, that a lot of Republicans have conceded was a, like a devastating ad for them. Now, this does deal with issues of rape. Uh, so I just want to make sure that if you're listening to this, like if you don't want to listen, you can kind of skip ahead for the next minute. Um, but let's play this ad uh, that a lot of Republicans say uh, was a real problem for them. I was raped by my stepfather after years of sexual abuse. I was 12. Anyone who believes there should be no exceptions for rape and incest could never understand what it's like to stand in my shoes. This is to you, Daniel Cameron. To tell a 12-year-old girl she must have the baby of her stepfather who raped her is unthinkable. I'm speaking out because women and girls need to have options. Daniel Cameron would give us none. Yeah, I hadn't seen that. Holy cow! Yeah, this issue a lot. Of, there's a lot of speculation that you know the abortion issue would fade. At least as of now, it has not. You know, you just look at the Ohio numbers. Ohio is not a state that has been looking good for for Democrats for a while. And again, it was plus twelve for Democrats. But I'll quote Politico. They said that a political analysis of eighty counties that reported um, before midnight found that the yes side exceeded Biden's twenty twenty margins by an average of more than ten percentage points in counties the Democrats held the Democratic president lost. The yes side overperformed Biden's twenty twenty results in blue counties too, but the margin of improvement was actually smaller. So something's going on in these red counties. And if you're starting to construct a path to victory in 2024 in the face of some tough numbers that we'll get to, uh, this is the starting point of it. Like time and again now, we have not held a presidential election um, in the post-Roe world, in the in the Dobbs world. And so far, there have been, um, you know, there's real evidence that this motivates Democrats, with the exception that this is a low turnout race. Like uh, this was lower turnout than the comparable year, which is 2019. The Cook Pro Political Report talked about this, that like Democrats have now continuously strung together a bunch of victories uh, in these sort of off-year elections 
in special elections, Democrat turnout is really high. And I think in part because we're the, you know, the higher education uh, party at this point. Uh, but you could imagine that the more sort of populist forces, the uh, more sporadic voters are are coming in 2014, which could make some for some more difficult math for Democrats. Yeah, I think there are a, there are things there are reasons to be excited. There are reasons to temper that excitement. One of the reasons to temper that excitement is most of these results that we're very excited about right now are state level results, including the uh, abortion. Uh, amendment in Ohio, because at the end of the day, that is a state level issue that they're voting on, whether or not to have it meet. Now, don't get me wrong, abortion very much a national issue, and there's good reason to take that result and say that can be replicated, all right? But to a lesser extent, Virginia and Kentucky, people vote differently on state level issues than they do on national. We have gotten to a point, sadly, where the national debate in this country is very parliamentary in nature. It's very partisan. People are more and more likely to just go in and vote by the party because they don't, for the most part, see the people at the state level as having to exercise a lot of discretion and have any, well, let's be honest, they don't think that senators and members of Congress have to have much of a brain or do much, right? That's the problem with when you run and you, and you run specifically against like a corrupt senator or an incompetent senator. There's a reason that that's so much less effective than when you run against somebody who you can accuse of being corrupt or incompetent and they are a governor or because people think, well, they got to actually do things. Same with mayors, right? But they just like, they want somebody to go and just vote a certain way when it comes to the Senate or legislative elections in a lot of cases. And so you can zero in on specific issues for a governor and you can win. And then with the state legislative side, I do think it clearly in Virginia that has a little more to do with the abortion issue. And that there's a lot of reason to be um, a really optimistic as a result of that, because, you know, on the, it's still a legislative election and people did choose the Democrats in that legislative election. Um, so I do think that that matters quite a lot. Yeah, I, I, this is going to be such a fascinating period of time, and I think this is a good time for an ad break. And when we come back, we're gonna we're gonna tackle the spiciest issue we've tackled in a while, which I think is a continuation of this conversation around Biden. But I think with the added flavor of two really fascinating data points that we have this week. One is this election. Two is a spat of polls culminating in this past weekend with a collective freakout that Democrats have had, uh, including myself, uh, pr pretty much ongoing, but I think reaching a crescendo over the weekend. We're going to make sense of all of that when we come back and, and help you think through this election and the polls. What does this mean for 2014 when we get back? This episode is sponsored by Roan. If you're like me, you understand the pains of finding what to wear. Most clothes are uncomfortable. They may be too tight. They never, you know, actually fit your size because, you know, a lot of us are not exactly small, medium, large, extra large. We're complicated. Sometimes when you find something you like, you can only wear it for a few hours before that important meeting or dinner, and then you have to change it into something else. And everyone wants to dress their best. You want to look good at all times. And frankly, it's a confidence booster. So here's the deal. Men's closets were due for a radical reinvention and 
Roan stepped up to the challenge. Roan's commuter collection is the most comfortable, breathable, and flexible set of products known to man, and here's why. Roan helps you get ready for any occasion with the commuter collection, which offers the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, and polos. You never have to worry about what to wear when you have the Roan commuter collection. And here's some anecdote. I'm wearing my Roan pants right now. And last week I was at a wedding. I wore my Roan uh, button-down shirt to the wedding at a formal wedding and i will also wear it tomorrow when i just you know go into a coffee shop to have a meeting it's that versatile so it's time to feel confident without the hassle with roan's wrinkle release technology wrinkles disappear as you stretch and wear the products it's that easy yeah i actually you know not so neatly folded that shirt in my bag for the wedding and i was able to take it out and automatically I was able to put it on. It looked like I had ironed it, but I didn't. You know, it's an inside secret between us. So with Gold Fusion anti-odor technology, you'll also be smelling fresh and clean all day on top of that. Roan is 100% machine washable, so you can dish the dry cleaner all together. We're on the move a lot, and the Roan commuter collection has never let me down. The versatility and overall comfort of the collection is undefeated. I absolutely love it. And even after I wear it all day, I feel super fresh because that Gold fusion anti-odor technology at that wedding i was dancing up a storm wore it no problems so the commuter collection can get you through any work day and straight into whatever comes next so head to roan.com majority and use the promo code majority to save 20 percent off your entire order that's 20 percent off your entire order when you head to r-h-o-n-e.com majority and use the code majority it's time to find your corner office comfort this show is sponsored by better help now i know this is a difficult time of year we're moving from fall to winter we've got a lot going on in the world, whether it's stuff happening internationally in wars or the divisions at home or looking ahead to 2024 elections with uh, doom and gloom in the polls. But then there's what's happening in your life. I know the holiday season can be lonely for certain people. And sometimes it brings you together with family members. And sometimes that does a certain thing to you. And that's why I recommend BetterHelp. Because I know I personally, and I know a lot of people who benefited from therapy, it's really important to talk to somebody uh, who sometimes isn't that friend, that family, somebody who you can open up with, somebody who's a professional. Uh, and that's why I really recommend BetterHelp. So if you're starting to think, uh, think of starting therapy or you're thinking of changing your therapist or just adding additional support, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited for your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Uh, and you know whether you've been to... Um, therapy before, uh, or whether you're a pro, BetterHelp, I think, offers a lot, especially, you know, a lot of people out there, you live in areas where there just aren't a lot of options, like majority 54 audiences, you know, sometimes spread across America, and you could be living in a rural place or a suburban place uh, where you just don't have that variety, and BetterHelp can give that to you. So um, find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash M54 today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash M54. All right, Jason. Over the weekend, the New York Times Siena College put out a poll that found Biden trailing Trump in five of the six most competitive battleground states. Trump led Biden by 10 points in Nevada, six in Georgia, five in Arizona and Michigan, and four in Pennsylvania. Uh, Trump, uh, Biden led Trump by two in Wisconsin. Um, those are all states that Biden won last time around. Uh, and uh, really troublingly, 
Uh, Biden is losing ground with black voters. Trump had 22% of black voters, um, and uh, he's struggling with young voters, basically neck and neck with young voters. Uh, Nate Cohen uh, from New York Times uh, tweeted out that these polls are in line with the average of all polls right now, both overall and by subgroup. We're only three weeks removed from a Trump plus 10 result from ABC uh, and The Post. Uh, He says the big picture is unmistakable. Jason, what do you think about all this? I'm not going to lie. It's scary, man. Um, because, because, because here's the problem. Um, on the, and I'll say this while my dog scares away a delivery person downstairs. So you may be able to hear her. Um, <laughs> I but, don't know. You should tip your delivery man well at Christmas. I don't know how you did. That I feel, dog is so scary. I, I feel bad when, anyway. Uh, so, okay. <laughs> There's two, there's two things here. One, uh, you can't deny that uh, folks think Biden is too old to do four more years. And it's unfair. I don't know if it's unfair to Biden, but it's unfair by comparison, right? Because as we've pointed out, Biden and Trump were in high school at the same age. The difference is Trump clearly very carefully stage manages every single public appearance down to starting every day in the makeup chair. They they go out of their way. One thing they do very well is they present him as very youthful when he is not, right? That's what they do with Trump. And so Biden is not doing well by comparison um, in terms of the perception. But it's still, perception is reality. Uh, and if we're being honest, when we think about being in our 80s and being president of the United States, it does seem like a tall task, all right? And we have to be honest with ourselves about that. My the reason I'm conflicted, in addition to the fact that well, at the end of the day, Joe Biden is the only one who gets a vote in this. And so what we say may not matter. But the reason I'm conflicted, if it were up to me, is my question here is, is this the way politics work now? Is that if you're president for four years or if you're the nominee for whatever amount of time, the way the right wing machine works is you are going to get hammered every single day by the machine to where your poll numbers may just automatically look like this at some point. And it, and it may not be the case that even if we w- didn't have to go through like a messy primary or anything like that, let's say you could just swap Biden out and put in another candidate, the candidate of your choosing that you might think would be the best one by election day. Are they going to be in the same place from a polling perspective? And if so, are you then confronted with the problem of if you were going to have the same approval number regardless, you would rather have the accomplishments that Biden has to go with the bad approval number? That's the unanswered question for me. Yeah. And I, where I come down on this, and I, I've described this a little bit before, is we kind of ran this experiment now because Biden had that opportunity and kind of and won the last election and started off with really high approval ratings. So something about the freshness to it, even though Biden was not a young man and he was somebody who is, you know, very much present in American life, he, he still was in a more commanding position heading into that election. Now, the, he also had the benefit of Trump being in power. And I think people were sick of Trump and and Trump's like... Trump can, pre- can present all the youthful yada yada he wants when he's not in office, but when he's in office, pe- he people are confronted with him in a certain kind of way. Um, you know, my former boss, David Axrod, friend of the pod, he's been on the pod before. Um, you know, waded into this. Uh, he said it's it's very late to change horses. A lot will happen in the next year that no one can predict. And Biden's team says it's his resolve to run. If he continues to run, he will be the nominee of the Democratic Party. What he needs to decide is whether that is wise. 
whether it's in his best interest or the country's. So getting spicy out there, Axe, and here's him going on CNN talking about this. David Axelrod joins us now. Uh, David, appreciate your time. You know when you're typing out these two tweets what the response is going to be. Um, and there's, I guess I would start with, what's the intent here? What do you want him to decide is in his best interest in the countries? Look, uh, only he can decide that, Phil. But, uh, and, and I don't, I'm not reacting to one particular poll, but, uh, you know, a whole body of, uh, of research and conversations with people. Uh, and my concerns, I want to make clear, I think Biden's been a great president. I think he's done things that have generational, will have generational impact and importance. I think he's, you know, been honorable in the office. Uh, you know, I, I have I have nothing but good things to say. But uh, as I've said for like a couple of years now, the issue is not uh, for him is is not uh political, it's actuarial. And you can see that in this poll. I mean, there's just a lot of concern about the age issue. And uh, and that is something that I think he needs to uh, ponder. Just do a check and say, is this the right thing uh, to do? I believe if he does run, he will be the nominee. And I'm not encouraging people to challenge him. I think the party w should fall in behind him if he's the nominee of the Democratic Party, because at the end of the day, this is a uh, not a normal race. This is a race about democracy and the state of our democracy and the survival of our democracy. And, uh, and that's the, th the threat on the other side here. And I know how deeply the president feels about that. So he just has to ask himself, is is you know, is this the best path? Uh, I suspect that he will say yes. Um, but Time is fleeting here, and this is probably the last moment uh, for him to do that check. And it's 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 probably good if he does. <laughs> what a diplomatic <laughs> way of saying. I I, Clearly, Axe doesn't think he should run. Yeah, but I, you I and I both wants know Axe well. Yeah, you and yeah. I both know Axe well enough to know that that's 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 David Axelrod being like Biden shouldn't run. <laughs> I mean, and this yeah. is not a small, like, look, like people could say whatever they want about X, but the man knows a lot about messaging. And he's picking up on the fact that, you know, we talked about this when it came out, the AP poll that showed 77% of Americans, including 69% of Democrats viewed Biden as too old to be effective for four more years. And we can't control yet the perception of Trump. And, and actually, in many ways, if the, if, if the voters hold Trump accountable to that, that still doesn't answer the question of whether Biden is the right guy, because you want to put forth the most salient, compelling candidate you could have. And the, the hardest part about this, and you pointed this out, is we just don't know what the alternative would look like if you ran a primary right now. So it's it's an unanswerable question. So it's just a matter of like judgment and probabilities here. So, okay. Uh, actually, just before we went on the air, I got an email from a listener of the show, which we used to read those all the time, but I'm bringing that back for a minute. And she made, she asked two big questions here, and I want us to take them one at a time. Uh, her name is Jen, and she's from Keene, New Hampshire. And Jen uh, asked, 
asked this, which nobody's really tackled, which is, is there any evidence that Biden is prepared to run against anyone other than Trump? In my mind, the case for democracy and his candidacy in particular needs to be about the threat the whole GOP poses, regardless of who the frontrunner is. But also, is he preparing for the possibility that Trump implodes or is taken down by his 91 felony counts and all of a sudden Biden is running against Nikki Haley or even worse, Ron DeSantis? I will throw in the other possibility is Trump is also very old. So there's another scenario in which it's not Trump, right? She says it's a small possibility, but I would think that a campaign strategy that shows his strengths up against any GOP nominee would be stronger than one that simply falls back on Trump's a terrible person. Vote for me instead. It is a good point in that we've all been thinking about this as can Trump, can Biden beat Trump? What happens if it's suddenly not Trump for some reason, if it's a if it's a Republican who doesn't have as much baggage with the country, does Biden win? Well, obviously, it's an unanswerable question at the moment. Right now, I can only say what the polling says, which is that Haley is the, the biggest problem for Biden uh, in the polling right now. And DeSantis is probably his best opponent. And and probably people like Vivek and people like that would be... Um, also, like if I'm choosing, if I'm if I'm Biden, I'm probably hoping for that. And and actually, Haley, honestly, if we're looking at the race right now, Haley is probably. I don't think there's any chance for any of these people unless Trump gets arrested. But Haley is the only one you could squint and make an argument for. Uh, but I think, like, I'll reiterate what I've said before, which is uh, I'm with AXA. I, I have a lot of positive things to say about Biden as president. But you know, Father Time is undefeated. It comes for all of us. And the question is. Is this, uh, you know, LeBron James is an amazing basketball player. At some point, he won't be. Uh, Michael Jordan, you know, on the Wizards was not Michael Jordan on the Bulls. And at a certain point, it's going to come. And I think it's it's an unanswerable question as to where, when Biden crosses that line. I mean, it may be answerable at some point, but Lord help us, like, let that we never get there, right? While he's in office, especially. But I think it's just a matter of judgment. And my judgment is I look at the, I look at Biden and I can say, like, you could sell high. Sell high on you've now you know expanded democratic majorities in key areas and had a you know a amazing economic run. The Fed put out a report with incredible economic numbers, et cetera, and um, everybody retires at a certain point, and then a lot of really successful leaders retire on top. And he could make way for Gretchen Whitmer, Shapiro, you know, people, you know, Bashir, like these types of folks who Westmore, like this incredible bench of candidates who, if I'm a betting man, I bet on those people. Like the, like the, the, you know, the Moses to the Joshua generation that Obama talked about, right? P- pass the baton um, and build on the success of the Biden administration. And that's how I want to frame it. I don't want to make it about like, hey, Biden, we're ungrateful for what you've done because I'm incredibly grateful for what he did uh, and what he's done as, but pre- with what he did to win the last election and what he's done as president. Um, but at the same time, I I would love to see a passing of the baton. But if it is him, like I will I will hoist a corpse through that finish line if I have to, <laughs> and like look like and, and if it comes to it, I'll be there. You know. Well, the, interestingly, this is the inverse of what we were talking about earlier with governors being able to depart from the partisan streaks of their states, right? Because when people look at a governor, they say, this person has to really do something. So I'm going to put aside Democrat and Republican. So here we are in a situation where when we look at the issues nationally, abortion, guns, the extremism with regard to democracy, uh, those are tipping, at least in the swing states in particular, 
toward the Democratic Party. But then when you introduce not not incompetence or, you know, being too old or anything like that as it currently is, but people worrying about somebody being able to keep it together over four years and going into their 80s, then you start to have the competence thing unfairly, mind you, begin to work against you with voters, which is one, which is the very thing that probably put him over the top to win the, the last election is that people were looking for competence. They were looking for steady. And that's the thing about being a president or a governor or a mayor. People are thinking about your ability to get up every day and do the job, not just do the job in a way that they agree with, right? Not just mm-hmm. have the same position as them on issues. So it, it also brings you to the question that I brought up earlier, which is, what if the way that the, the attack machine works now is that all the negative stuff that has been thrown at Biden, if you have, if you, you know, pull him, you can't do this, you're going to have a primary, but whatever it is, whoever steps in, if it ends up being Kamala Harris, who's the nominee, or if it's Jared Polis or whoever, that by the time we get to election day, their numbers look exactly the same, but they can't point to all the accomplishments. It's a really, really difficult choice for Biden to make in that way. Yeah, I mean, Polis, I know you're you're threatening me here with a really good time here. I, I'm not going to take that. <laughs> I know you're a big really Polis fan. Uh, but um, putting aside Polis, uh, I, I'm going to get a Polis poster over here. I'm going to be the only <laughs> human being on this planet with one. But the, um, but okay, clearing that distraction for a second. But here's my dream scenario. I I would love for the Democrats to be able to run on like what are most elections about? Change versus more of the same. Now every once in a while. Uh, somebody does both, like mm-hmm. uh, take back, um, take back control from Brexit, or make America great again. Was a change and more of the same. It was like change from this sort of Washington way of doing things, and you know neoliberalism, yada yada yada. Uh, and it was more of the same in the sense like it was a nostalgia election, right? Now what what um, what we could do is say, look, like the the voters are clamoring for difference. One party uh, is delivering the same old hat. In Trump, uh, but we have listened to you, the voters. And what we're saying is, like, even though we got this amazing economic record, and we've got a lot that we're going to run on, and those policies will continue, um, we hear you. You want new energy. You're sick of this Trump versus Biden dichotomy, and this is your way out of it. Your way out mm-hmm. of it's Gretchen Whitmer. It's Shapiro, right? It's Westmore, right? It's a, it's a new face, somebody with new energy, and somebody who you can, you like, if there's gonna be a like every once in a while. Obama did this and Trump, unfortunately, did this too. Every once in a while, when a new face comes onto the scene, it dislodges certain things within our politics. It allows people to reconsider. So that 20% of people who crossed the aisle of sorts in, in Ohio to vote for the abortion measure, or the people who voted for Bashir, right? Or and actually states that are going to probably matter more, uh, not to say anything about those states, but... Like this gives us an opportunity to revisit their assumptions and say, all right, that five to ten percent of people who really, really hate Trump within the Republican Party, but also hate Biden, but also you know look at their net worth and how it's increased and um, and how there's been economic stability uh, in the face of major, major obstacles over the past few years, and they look at Biden and say, all right, like I don't like Biden, but I kind of want. I don't want to go back to the days of Trump and I have it out. And that out is Westmore or Gretchen Whitmer. I'm for that world. Yes, that's the ideal scenario. Here's, I'm not arguing back. I really don't know what I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Because no, I hear you. Because here, here's the other way it goes is like, you know, I'm 
like what, I'm a huge Westmore fan. Like I think we've had him on the show, right? I think for we sure. Have. Yeah, we have. Um, yeah. And uh, I love Wes. Um, but if you introduce Wes, what if it goes the other way? What if it's like the first few weeks, people are like, this guy's amazing. Wow. Road scholar, combat veteran, you know, incredible personal story, all that. But everybody has things they've been attacked for. And then the next thing that happens is you start introducing those things. And because people don't have a long history with, with that candidate or with that person, one of the first things they get to hear is the other side defining them. The thing that, that a candidate like Biden has going for him is you can't, it, it, you are limited in your ability to define Biden if you're the Republicans, right? You, they're trying very hard to redefine him with the Hunter stuff. They're, they're obviously going to work really hard to redefine him with, as, uh, as Axe so euphemistically puts it, actuarial arguments, uh, age. You have that. But anytime you introduce somebody new, it is a race to whether you're going to define you or they're going to define you. So but it here's can the, crater too. Here, here's the problem. I, and to use that metaphor, in this Trump-Biden race, unfortunately, we're starting off behind in the race. Uh, whereas I think right. in the in the Westmore race, actually, we're both racing to define Westmore at the exact same time. And I would rather take that world than a world in which we are largely having to convince people of perceptions they've already baked in with Biden, which is a lot harder. You know, it's like it's like they say it's like it takes a lifetime to build a reputation and a, and a second to lose it or something is the saying. Right. I'm butchering mm -hmm. it. It's just how it is. It's unfortunate. Right. Like, you know, like I remember dealing with this in Nashville and I was running schools. I was like flying high at a certain point. And then I got in some fight with school board. And then for like a year, people wouldn't look me in the eyes in town, even though it's like so it's like you just like these kinds of things just like happen. Like it's just, and it takes a long time to to dig out of it. The, the unfortunate reality is the stakes were relatively low for me. I had, you know, a pretty stable situation. I was running my schools. It didn't really matter. And I dug myself out of it and, and reclaimed my positioning. The problem here is we have a very limited amount of time. And that's kind of the urgency that Axe is talking about. And with a, uh, a diminishing resource, which is Biden's age and vigor, like inevitably, no matter what people say, which is why ageism is like a different debate than other isms in the sense that it comes for all of us. The statistics are what they are. And it's just a reality that we have to deal with. Like nobody would hoist a 110 year old into the presidency. So we all agree that there's a limit somewhere. This is this would be the uh, we you know we would be the the you know breaking records here. And we just need to take that seriously. And it's not the only reason why. Biden might consider not running. There, there are many reasons why he might consider not running, but I think that's one of them. And that's what the voters are screaming at us to consider. And look, here's the best argument I can make for that, for that point, which is that right now, probably the biggest liability that the Biden campaign has is this, is age and people questioning whether he can continue to do it. Combined with a secondary to that is just being on the scene for so many years that Americans, we, we don't have the longest attention span, right? If you can pull off introducing a new, obviously younger uh, candidate and new to the scene in a way where they don't take on too much water, well, then you've completely flipped that scenario. And then what you yes. have is somebody running against Trump who is going to be very youthful by comparison and uh, who is not going to, people are not going to be tired of, right? There's something to yes. that. So the last point that I think would be the strongest point for this would be that if you believe, and I think this is right, that all things being equal in this next election between abortion, guns, extremism, the continuance of democracy, 
I think that the issues break, not overwhelmingly, but slightly toward the Democrats. If you can develop a scenario where your candidate has the regular liabilities of a regular Democrat, being hit as too liberal, being hit, you know, all those kind of things, with a minimal amount of the liabilities, I'm kind of talking myself into this, with a minimal amount of, of the liabilities that uh, come with the personal to them, minimal or just mitigated, well, then you're in a very advantageous position because now you're running on, you know, doing something about gun safety, doing something, uh, you know, restoring rights when it comes to reproductive rights, fighting against extremism and preserving democracy. Well, then you're in a very good position. And it, it brings me to the second question that Jen from Keene, New Hampshire asked. She said, Secondly, I've been thinking a lot about how Reagan won over many Democrats in 1980 and 1984 and then went about the work of converting them to Republicans or at least keeping them as voters for the GOP. Biden got many Republicans and GOP-leaning independents voting for him in 2020, which made the difference. I don't see much evidence that he's been doing the work to keep them the way Reagan did. What are you seeing and what strategies do you think would work? That's the mm. second level question, which is, what what are the issues that allow us to expand the coalition, which is what this whole show is about, right? And yep. I'll give you time to think about it. I've had time to think about my answer. And I think that the answer, there's the obvious one, which they're, they are successfully pushing every day, which is uh, extremism, keeping democracy in place, that kind of thing. But you alluded to this earlier. You said some of these issues, they can fade away from the scene. And we the only way for us to keep the threat of extremism and the threat of losing democracy at the forefront is to be talking about it every day. However, sadly, really unfortunately, guns and abortion are not issues that fade away for tragic reasons. Guns because we keep constantly having mass shootings in this country. That issue is not going away and Americans are more and more questioning their, even if they believe themselves to be programmed, questioning that position. And then two, abortion. Anytime you're talking about someone having a right or not having a right, that issue is not going to fade away. Because if people don't have their right that they should have today, they're not going to have it tomorrow either. And they're not going to lose their enthusiasm for trying to get that right back. My point is that, well, I will give an, an, an anecdote, just I'm sorry for the monologue, but um, no, no, keep going. There's only two of us, so sometimes it happens. Uh, <laughs> when, when, uh, when I talk about these issues with people, and it comes up a lot, like I, I live in a place and work in a place where I am surrounded by people who don't always have the same liberal views as me. And I usually bring up these two, because what I will do is I will say to somebody who will talk about abortion, for instance, I will say, uh, okay. Let me ask you this. And I will do just what that ad we played earlier does. I will start talking about issues like in the case of rape, in the case of incest. Um, and then I'll start just gradually walking through several issues. And then what I generally say is when they give me more often than not very reasonable answers about those things that I would agree with, I say, well, if you were to run for office and try and get the, the endorsement of a national right to life group with those positions they would not only not endorse you, they would campaign against you and they would consider you to be pro-choice. So perhaps you are pro-choice, right? And then, and then I do the same thing on guns. I'll ask people, well, do you think that there should be a background check? Do you think people who uh, have committed domestic violence, do you think that there, there should be a way in the law 
for them to not be able to get a gun when that is the leading cause of uh when of when when women are murdered uh by their spouses is that's that's the leading way you know and i go through these and over and over they say well yeah and, th- and then they'll th- you'll talk about red flag laws and, and eventually you might find a place where they disagree it's usually somewhere after an assault weapons ban and and this includes with gun owners and then you say okay well you would get an f rating from the nra if you were to run for office so my point is these are arguments that i think can be made um by either Biden or another candidate to expand that coalition and try and turn the voters that have been won over in the last few years into Democrats and not just Republicans who, in some cases, vote for Democrats. Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting question, and and I really appreciate the question. It's, I think there are two ways to do it. And the Reagan way, I think, was a combination of having a a very clear, forward-looking vision and I mean, obviously, it wasn't an inclusive vision, but it was a forward-looking vision, especially for suburbanites who dominated the 80s in many different ways, uh, but also getting feisty when you need to in a way that challenges the traditional way people talk about things. Obviously, Trump is really good at that, like the feistiness. We just don't see that a lot with Democrats is like, you know, picking the right kind of fight. Obviously, it's what made Bernie so popular amongst a certain se- segment. So that's one way to do it, right? That kind of combination. Um, I think the second is the Obama way to do it, which is a little bit of the Reaganite, like visionary and all that. But I think, you know, I forget who said this, but, um, you know, the most effective way to persuade people is to listen to them, right? You don't need to agree with them. And this is what made you, among many other things, uh, a strong politician is that you're a good listener. And I think like a politician who shows that they're listening, even if they don't come out the other side completely agreeing with you. I mean, Bill Clinton was a master at this. That's a great politician. Now, it's so hard to do as president, and especially it's so hard to do when people have baked in their impression of you. But whatever ways you could say that you show that you're listening. Um, and, you know, Obama was ascendant politically, especially before he became president, because in part because his speeches were a little longer and a little bit more like almost like entertaining people people wanted to watch them they were like songs yeah yeah and also he's like he had a charity of spirit where like you know he'd talk about you know that famous race speech in philadelphia for example where he'd be like look like you know i'm not gonna disown reverend Wright because i'm not gonna disown my grandmother my white grandmother who you know would do things that you know like i look back on and i wince about it like you know walking on the other side of the street when somebody who would look like me would be walking on the other side of, you know on on her side of the street and like there was this sort of dialogue he was having to be like look like i want to make you the hero of this story right and i think this is what democrats have walked away from i've been thinking about this a lot since you know it's the 15th anniversary of our victory with obama this past weekend and I think we've kind of gotten away from, and in many ways, this is like, reminds me of the Israel conversation, because a lot of the same forces within the party who I think have taken some of the positions that you and I disagree with on Israel are also the kind of people who've created an uninviting environment, a black and white environment for people who enter the party. Whereas I have always been through ARENA, from Obama, everything I, I believe in politics is that you leave the door open. You allow people to be imperfect. You allow them to come through that door and be the hero of the story, even if they may have been the villain before. And the heroes and villains, are it's not always clear, right? This is a country that's 50-50, 60-40, 55-45, and it can't be true that 45% of 
the public or or 46 to use the 54 majority 54 it can't be that they're just inherently bad people i refuse to admit that but there has been a segment of our party that has kind of dragged us into messaging that implies that and we can't bring those people along if we're if we're treating them as evil people and that has to be central to our messaging biden and beyond and every single one of the people we mentioned whether it's westmore shapiro bashir whitmer are really good at that like they're really good at keeping that door open and biden when he's at his best for sure i don't want to i don't want to shortchange him you know right that's how he won it it does beg the question does a democratic primary set up in such a way that that's the person you get or does it yeah that's the dice roll or is it or does it play to the scenario where the person who can accumulate because remember who votes in primaries both republican and democratic the most partisan most fervent passionate fired up people those people tend to be on the ideological edges of their own party left and right so that's now i this is not this is not me saying a progressive can't win the presidency it's it's you and i saying that there is there is an art to being a progressive who doesn't make people feel excluded and and making and and there however that does run counter to how you sometimes win your own party's primary because sometimes the way you have to speak to your people in order your own party in order to win the the most of those votes is to it can be to demonize the other side now biden proved that you don't have to do it that way last time obama proved that you don't have to do it that way and that does mean that the la- you know and and by the way I think you could argue that uh, Hillary, even though she didn't win the presidency, that she was certainly not doing that. So that 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 is an argument for it, right? Is that our party is unique? Is that the most inclusive voice does tend to emerge? But our politics have been changing awfully quickly. Yeah, but I actually think they've been changing in the right direction. So I I think, and we could we should do another segment on this. Where it's like, I actually think that the online loud version of the party that captures the attention online is not the same as the sort of people who show up to vote. And the people who show up to vote have actually been um, moving closer to the politics that you and I generally share and that sort of generosity of spirit. I mean, hell, a a Republican won a a city council seat in New York in the Bronx this this (laughs) past week. So it's like... Like I think that there is a uh, and 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 that's and and what's the lesson there? I mean, there's a lot, but it's like sometimes when the Democrats run a certain kind of left candidate, I don't want to call it extreme left because you and I are eclectic in some of the things that we believe. Is like I wouldn't say that I'm like a moderate strictly right, um, but like certain point, like voters are rejecting a certain kind of unchallenged uh, leftist politics and 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 are demanding something different. And I, I would I would bet on the electorate yielding a candidate who represents that sort of rational uh, wing of the Democratic Party. But okay, with this, what I've heard is actually you're going to be running for president. And if, <laughs> listeners, if you agree that he should no, and you stop. want to support that campaign, well, actually, this is great like for getting button. listeners. Keep going, yeah, keep going. We'll, hit we'll the like button if way. you think he should if he should do that, uh, and we'll get moving <laughs> on that. And while we do that, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back and talk about Trump appearing in court. How did this get to be the C segment? What a week. Uh, we'll be right back. So longtime listeners, you know uh, that I'm a huge fan of AG1. I know Jason is too. We've been drinking this stuff for a long time. I've been drinking it way before 
they sponsored this podcast and I take it every day. It's the first thing I drink in the morning. I just mix one scoop with water and it's really that daily foundational nutritional insurance. Uh, it really, it, to me, it's, it's replaced a whole bunch of other supplements that I used to take. Um, and it just ensures that I get what I need to start the day. Um, and we're talking about prebiotics, probiotics, digestive enzymes for your gut support, magnesium, B vitamins for energy, adaptogens to balance your body's stress, vitamin C, zinc. I mean, it's so much. Um, and I recommend this to you because uh, no matter who you are, if you're just somebody who has a demanding job, um, you're a parent and you're balancing all those responsibilities, if you're an athlete, um, AG1 is for you. Um, and uh, I have been taking it for a long time, but I've also just been recommending it to a tons of friends. And, you know, it's, it's amazing how this stuff has uh, changed uh, people's energy levels, changed their levels of fitness, changed just their awareness of how they start their days. Uh, and I think like I'm a huge coffee drinker. And I think one thing that AG1 has done for me is it's replaced that first drink of coffee, which people like Andrew Huberman say, you got to wait a little while before you drink that coffee. And now I hydrate first thing in the morning and get all of those nutrients that I otherwise wouldn't get. So I can't recommend this enough. Uh, and if you want to take ownership over your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D. Uh, it's a vitamin D3 K2 pack and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. You can go to drinkag1.com slash majority. That's drinkag1.com slash majority to check it out. All right, Trump legal. This is like a standing segment, by the way. Like we do yeah. this literally every week. We need like a law and order. Salty uh, and Jeremy, we should do a little law and order thing from now on every time we come in and do this, as long as you two won't punish us for that. Or we can come up with a, like a faux law and order thing. Um, I can, so, okay. we, can I, can you make the noise? It has the noise. Am I confusing it with Seinfeld? Like, bum, bum, no, no, yeah, it's something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. by the way, I, I, I got, I had a chance to see Alvin Bragg last week. It was great. You know, cause I've been kind of a little harsh yeah. to him. So I was like wondering whether he would be okay. And he's, he's such a nice guy. I have to say, I've been, I was so critical of him, but he's, he, he's basically like, yeah, it comes with the job and we had a really good lunch and. Um, he's the real oh, life guy. Good. Like it's so amazing. And we were having, we had this experience where we're having lunch and, uh, and we were just in this cafe in Harlem and I was the first to arrive. So I didn't like kind of realize how he'd shown up as so we had lunch or whatever. And we're kind of lingering. And then we went outside and we're kind of talking and I'm like, Oh, there's like a bunch of suburbans outside. I'm like, somebody, <laughs> who's here? He was like, Oh no, that's me. I'm like, wow. Like, this is like, this is what happens when you, when you win, man, he's such a nice guy. Uh, so, okay. I, the Trump was on the stand. Mm. I mean, this is a big moment. Yet mm -hmm. somehow it doesn't feel that big because mm. he's he's so insane that he just was continued to be insane. I mean, he is going to lose a lot of money, right? Like mm -hmm. you're the civil expert here. Oh, yeah. Like, well, let's dispense first with this argument he's making that he's saying that the judge had already ruled against him before the trial ever started. This statement is actually technically true yes. because he lost on summary judgment. But what people should know is that summary judgment is literally just a legal standard that says, are there facts that are not in dispute? Are, are there things that are so clear that there is no point in arguing them in court in front of a judge or, or usually in front of a jury, but in this case, in front of a judge because they chose not to have a jury. And the judge looked at the evidence that that the Trump organization, that Trump had defrauded people and inflated, uh, you know, the uh, 
holdings that they had in order to, to get loans as facts. He just was like, these are facts. They are beyond dispute. And so the judge ruled, we're not going to have a trial over these things. So that's what has Trump so angry in court. And that's why they're getting frustrated with him, because he keeps wanting to relitigate, literally, that question. And they're like, that's not what we're here to talk about, dude. Um, I, I agree with you that I, it doesn't seem to matter, but it's not on TV. And, you know, some of these other, at least the Georgia trial, right? I think the Georgia trial is going to be on YouTube, I think. There's going to be video footage of him losing his mind in court, looking guilty and losing his mind. I do think that could matter. Yeah, I mean, side note, you want to know why the Google stock uh, or Alphabet continues to crush it? It's like like so many things in this world just play out on YouTube now. Like th the ratings equivalent of what that little courthouse mm -hmm. is going to be posting is going to be Mr. Beast level video numbers. I just can't believe it. Um, but essentially like what happened here, and I think this is going to be a pattern. I mean, it has been a pattern is Trump. Trump is extreme entropy. If you remember the physics term entropy, right? Mm, no, he starts out me. and he's a little bit contained right in the morning. And he's, he's, he kind of sort of adheres to what his lawyer tells him to do. And then he just explodes throughout time, almost like the Big Bang, right? And it's like, as, by the afternoon, he's like yelling at the judge. He's accusing everybody of all these things. And it's like, it's just a mess. And it it's, there's like upwards of 200 plus million dollars on the line here, which is going to be a very, very devastating blow to Trump. Um, and he's, he's, he's already behind, like because of the summary judgment. I mean, this, this ain't going to be good. Yeah, no, he, it's what, $250 million and the ability to continue to do business in New York. Um, okay, so the other thing that's happening as we speak is that Ivanka was on the stand today. Um, and so far, it looks like not much happened. I mean, it was kind of classic Ivanka um, in that they were like, you know, she came across as friendly toward the attorney general's people and that she was soft-spoken and they had to remind her to speak up. And then eventually it got a little bit tense when she kept saying um, that uh, she did not recall certain things. And it seems so far like her testimony may end up being a pretty big nothing burger. So, you know, it's what right now it's two o'clock central, three o'clock Eastern, and the most recent thing here. And again, it's not televised, so it's just we're getting the reports coming out. I'm reading like the live coverage on the NBC website. Um, and there's a motion from Trump's attorney to block her from being asked about emails between her and her husband, uh, because the argument is that those are spousal privilege that, that quote, uh, Trump's lawyer, the witness, cannot be compelled to speak about communications with her spouse. But the judge sided with the AG's office, which contended that the emails were sent from work email addresses on work topics. And the judge said it's not privileged, which I would just like to say there's an interesting irony in there uh, in that we're back to talking about emails. And we've had back and forth between whether they, you know, in, in other debates, whether they made the same error that Hillary made and using not now, apparently in this case, the problem is they did use their work email accounts. So the judge is like, these are work emails, you can you can use them. Um, but so far, it doesn't seem like there's going to be any big bombshell from uh, from her testimony. Um, I don't know, like, there's one theory that says that eventually, all of these legal traps are going to take Trump down politically, though probably not in the primary. And I don't, I don't know whether I believe that or not. Yeah, I, I'm at this point when it comes to the Trump stuff, I'm just a pebble in, in the stream. 
and the water's <laughs> yeah. just washing over me. I'm just like, I I have no control over it. I, I refuse to even predict anymore what's going to happen. And I'm just letting the water wash over me and just trying to take it one day at a time here, one week at a time, one segment at a time here. And I think like, you know, there's just these parallel tracks, right? There's Biden's actuarial track. There's the Democratic electoral track, which we just talked about. There's the Republican primary track, which is probably the least interesting part of this whole thing. Uh, and then there's the Trump legal track and then Trump's actuarial track. I mean, there's just all these variables. Right. Uh, and, you know, the only thing you could do for your mental health here, you know, to use that, I think it's either Tversky or Kahneman, which is like, you don't want to borrow tomorrow's problems, you know? Uh, it's like, I... I'm trying not to have anxiety about it and take it one day at a time. So maybe that's a good place. I think, I think what it all goes back to for our listeners who listen to this show, at least in part, because they want to know what to say to their conservative friends and family, is at the end of the day, don't get into arguments about Trump's legal position. Don't get into arguments about Biden's age, Trump's age, any of that stuff. Remember that the reason that there's a debate tonight, in the, I think tonight, in the Republican primary for president, why there's still people running is because they think that there's a decent chance that either Trump won't be able to run because he's in prison and it'll turn out that despite our worst fears that you can't run from prison uh, and uh, or, or that he dies or something else that they all want to be ready to slide into that opening. And that means and we also, there's the possibility we just talked about that Biden's not the nominee because he decides not to run or because of something else that's really tragic, whatever. At the end of the day, it comes back to take all these conversations back to Democrat versus Republican without defining it that way. Just take everything back to the issues. Because when you take things back to the issues and you remove the personalities, more often than not, we're going to win those arguments. Uh, and so that's what I think everybody uh, should do right now. Yeah, and what's amazing, I did a segment on the Lost Debate about this yesterday. The economy is a booming, Jason. Like, mm -hmm. it's like, it's crazy that nobody's talking about this. Like, there, there was a record increase in household wealth, and actually with the opposite of what people think, actually it was skewed towards the bottom 25%, which saw a 900 plus uh, percent increase in net wealth since the beginning of the pandemic. So That's what we should uh, be talking about. And there's just a about. whole lot of other great data. And so we'll we'll get there. I mean, obviously everything's a little rickety, but you know, like there there there's a little hope there because that stuff takes a while to bake in. We've talked about this before, and we do have time to make that argument. Uh, mm -hmm. And hopefully, the, the economy sustains itself for reasons you know beyond even just electoral reasons. But okay, uh, well, let me let me ask it before we go. Usually, uh, we've been talking about uh, Israel and Palestine each week. Uh, I wanted to throw in. We didn't get to that this week, but. I want to put a plug in for the the two podcasts, really three podcasts, but but two essential ones that you did for the Lost Debate, the other podcasting role that you have. Um, which you know what, you just talk about it. I just oh, tell people you, it's man. awesome. Um, yeah, so I did these two podcasts. Now it's four. There's uh, two history uh, on the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and I, you know, people who've listened to the show know I have opinions about what I, what I try to do is go out of my way to make it objective and actually include information that was inconvenient to people who disagreed with me. I'm getting great feedback. They're the most listened to episodes we've ever had, and uh, and I'm getting positive feedback from people on both sides of the debate. Uh, and there's obviously more than two sides of the debate. And then I had like a more contemporary episode where I kind of debated what's happening today. And then I just recorded, and it'll be up by the time people are listening to this on the podcast feed. Um, I did a whole deep dive into Hamas and who Hamas are, and I just recorded that before this. And so that'll be up tonight, which is 
what is today Wednesday so that'll be up um in the next hour or two so yeah and I'm gonna keep going I mean I'm just really excited you know I like to nerd out so it's, this has been an excuse to do it. It's a really impressive thing what you did. I mean, it, it's like a Huberman podcast, but for the history of, of Israel and Palestine. And, you know, I consider myself somebody who's pretty knowledgeable about this. I learned a lot from it. Uh, and and it really is unbiased. And I've shared it with a bunch of people. Diana's halfway through it. like, And when we both, re- after we listened to it, and after she listened to her part, she's like, Ravi's incredible. I was like, he, he truly is. Like what you're able to distill. Um, so I wanted to plug that. And, uh, but I go ahead if you have something else. No, I was just gonna say, I, I love an opportunity to not be interesting myself. So I love it just giving myself an excuse to be a little bit didactic and tedious, which is like, no, you didn't make it interesting zone. though. No, you made it interesting. Yeah. It was, it was very good. All right. Uh, the, the other, I wanted to a real quick grab an oar. Um, for those who don't know, uh, my day job is I'm the president of national expansion at veterans community project. Uh, we are a nonprofit that, uh, builds villages of tiny houses for homeless veterans, uh, and also provides services for at-risk veterans, um, across the country. And, uh, and so what we are doing right now, uh, and it actually launched today. It's kind of cool is it's sort of a guerrilla marketing thing. Um, we uh, and you can go to my Instagram. It's just at Jason Kander, and you can see the video about it, it on my feed. Uh, we got veteran veterans who we work with to go on Airbnb and to use actual photographs of actual homeless encampments around the country, and have created uh, Airbnb listings uh, all over the country in all sorts of different locales. Uh, but the listing is for a homeless encampment. It's actually just for places where homeless veterans live to try and get folks who are maybe looking for destination vacations or for vacation destinations to, to think about the way homeless folks and homeless veterans are, are, uh, are living right now. And then asking people to go to vcp.org veterans community project.org and and give $10 uh, to help uh, house a homeless veteran. There's over uh, 30,000, there's approaching 40,000 homeless veterans on the street at any given time in the United States. And uh, I just wanted to put a plug in for that rather unique campaign. That's amazing, man. I have to go on there and get some. Thanks. Well, all right, we can do one for us real quick. What's new with you? I'm just back in New York and I I'm, I was able to sustain this time change. Like what I love is when you gain time, you could wake up. It makes mm. it easier to wake up early. And so I've been waking up at 4.30 in the morning every day. It's like I throw it back to my college days. And I've had this routine where I walk over to the certain part of Brooklyn where this, this guy owns a bagel shop. He opens it early and then I go to another diner and then I go to this other coffee shop. And I've been just crushing it, like finishing writing projects I'm in and everything. About like 10 a.m. every day, I feel like I'm on top of the world. And, and my goal is not to get on an airplane until uh around christmas time and so that's and so i can sustain this so feeling good that, that's very funny to me because when you gain an extra hour when you have two kids i was like oh my god i can wake up at the same time but feel more rested and uh, it's, <laughs> it's been very nice uh my quick one for us is i just got back from milwaukee where we uh, veterans community project we're about to uh, do the launch of our capital campaign there to build a veterans community project campus in Milwaukee. And the reason I mention it is because uh, we, m- my like team and some volunteers and I, we knocked on doors in the area surrounding the site where we're going to build uh, to just let neighbors know about it, answer any questions. And I haven't knocked on doors in a long time uh, since I was doing it for politics. And it was just really fun, like really invigorating to get out, knock on doors, talk to folks. But what was just felt strange about it was 
we were, of course, knocking on every door. It wasn't like, okay, let's go to the frequent voters. Yeah, you don't have it that was, walk packet. Yeah. I don't have a walk packet. I'm not taking any notes after a door. I can have a very nice conversation with somebody about the project that we're going to build in their neighborhood. And then afterwards, I just go to the next door. And it. I kept feeling like I'm forgetting to do something. And uh, so anyway, it was just as an experienced door knocker, it was an interesting and kind of freeing thing. So thank you to oh everybody in Milwaukee who opened their door and talked to me. I mean, I would, right. there's a longer discussion. I'll, I'll ask you about it offline. I'm just so fascinated by how people react when you tell them what you're doing. But we oh, could well, talk about that another time. Well, I'll just tell you, we've had some places where it's a thorny reaction, but in, I'm very optimistic because in this neighborhood in Milwaukee, people were very excited about it. So that Excellent. was very cool. One woman got kind of emotional when I told her what we were doing. And she was like, my dad was in the army. And so that was cool. But all right, remember to subscribe to Majority 54 wherever you listen to audio podcasts. Just search Majority 54 and please leave a five-star review. I actually went back and, and read some of the reviews here recently and folks were very nice. Thank you. Uh, thank you to the Midas Mighty. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. 